This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, complex He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs. Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam and I'm joined as always by my little older brother and real life economist Thomas. Hi Thomas, how's it going? Yeah, good Adam. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, look, as always, we love getting uh, listener emails coming through um, and you can, you can email us anytime you like, cve at equitymates.com or hit up the website equitymates.com forward slash cve and this week, Thomas, the email inbox was overflowing. It was <laughs> jam-packed. Uh, we had over a trillion emails, would you believe, wow. if my maths is correct, <laughs> if our maths is correct, which it turns out our maths is rubbish, uh, and that's what most of the emails were about that hit our, hit our inbox this week. So um, I will tell you all about, all about that a bit later on when we cover off um, that and some other questions that came through. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But first, Thomas... Ever given a toss about a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal? Oh, well, what? this week you might. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. The reason the reason that that is hilarious, of course, is because there was a ship, and the ship was called Ever Given. Which, not to be confused, if you have seen the media reports, the ship is called Ever Given, even though there's massive writing on the side of the ship. Mm. Which says evergreen. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, "What?" Yeah, I thought I thought someone had just made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> just a lazy, just you know, some lazy like journalism, co- copy editing in the, in the newspapers, and just someone's it's right it. there. It's right there on the side. How did you miss it? <laughs> um, no, it turns out that evergreen is the name of the company that owns the ship, and ever given is the name of the ship, and is some somehow it's. Um, oh yeah. Right, Evergreen's the company, Evergiven's the ship. Yes. Wow. Okay. Correct. Evergiven, because it's a strange word. Like, mm. I mean, a strange name for a ship. I think they, they committed some time to naming their ships like Ever-G something, which is a uh, bizarre naming convention to go with. Yeah, yeah, right. And so that's how you end up with Evergiven. So they started with Evergreen as the uh, company and then they went with like Evergreat, Evergood and ran out of kind of superlatives, I guess. And now we're at Ever Given. <laughs> must, I think it's the same people that name cyclones and tropical storms. <laughs> yeah, so you end up with Cyclone Larry and things like that. Um, apologies to all the Larrys out there. <laughs> Might be tuning in. Um, but anyway, back to the story. And the Ever Given, which is a huge ship, uh, it's kind of bigger than the Empire State Building, absolutely enormous shipping vessel. 
it got stuck. It ran aground in the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal, for anyone that doesn't know, is in Egypt. It's a man-made canal. They dug a big, big trench um, through the sort of top right part of Egypt. Uh, and that, that big trench joins now the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea. And basically, it's one of the busiest, if not the busiest, shipping routes in the world. It kind of connects Asia with Europe. So if you want to ship from, you know, Malaysia to France, you're going to go through the Suez Canal. Yeah, 200 kilometers long, but it saves ships 9,000 kilometers by having to not go all the way around Africa. Yeah. And if you've ever watched movies, I think the, the Horn of Africa, isn't that like where ships perish? Isn't that like, <laughs> that's, I'm pretty sure I've seen movies where people have like, oh, mm. you don't want to go around the Horn of Africa know, the Cape for of, various reasons. Yeah. Pirates, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it just it was a perilous time. All places <laughs> shipping back in the day. <laughs> there are dangers everywhere. <laughs> well, that's probably why they built the Suez Canal because there'd be dangers, and they were like, "We need less dangers." You know, <laughs> we need more boats arriving at their destination port. So yeah, so they the Suez Canal. So you're right. So they had to they'd have to go around Africa, basically around the bottom of Africa to get where they need to be. So it cost them heaps in time and obviously money. So that's where the Suez Canal came from. Anyway, this ship, the Ever Given, is now stuck. And as of recording at, uh, what is it, 29th of March, roughly 9 o'clock at night, I believe that they've just managed to float it. They've said they've partially floated it. Ah, so most they e- may have dug it out. Ah, most exciting float of the year. <laughs> Move over Roblox. Oh. oh, in case you're after puns this week on Comedian vs. <laughs> Economist, we have them coming thick and fast. Um, yeah, they've managed, they've managed to partially float it. I don't know what that means, but it's obviously a positive step because up until now, it's blocking um, hundreds of ships. And these ships are huge, as we said. So each ship can, is carrying um, billions of dollars worth of, worth of cargo. And so none of these ships can get through. Um, and it's... The reason we want to talk about today is because it has really huge impacts globally, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's pretty big. Like as you're saying, like the Suez Canal is is one of the major shipping routes. Like there's I think nineteen thousand ships went through go through a year. That's like fifty a day. Um, so huge volumes of of trade. Like the was it the um, Ever Given itself? It's got twenty thousand shipping containers on it. Like it's massive. Yeah, wow. It's a lot of shipping containers. You could build a lot of tiny homes out of that. Build a whole village. We should do an episode on tiny homes. I read an article today that tiny homes are booming. So yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a huge amount of trade going through going through there. So yeah, was it like ten percent of total seaborne oil, eight percent of LNG, and twenty percent of container volumes through the Suez? So yeah, so it's pretty significant, and oil prices in particular are spiked sort of on the nervousness around this. Not, no one thinks it's going to be too long-lasting. And you think, you know, for all of human ingenuity, we literally dug a canal through two continents, so we should be mm. able to unplug a ship. <laughs> we should be able to get a boat out that got stuck in the one that we dug. <laughs> We've obviously got the technology to go deeper than the boats. Yeah. <laughs> but have you, seen the, have you seen the earth-moving equipment that they're using to dig out this ship? It's just they're like little specks, little cars next to the uh, next to the ship. Like it's gonna take them forever. 
Well, obviously not. They've got it partially floated, but it's just... Yeah. Because, I mean, this the, the canal was dug back in 1850 something. Like, it's around that mark. And What? Really? Yeah. 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 I didn't think we had the technology to dig a hole that big then. Oh, we had shovels. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, but... Well, it's, a, it's, like, it's like the whole aqueduct system in the north of England. Like, yeah, that was, that was probably done around the same time. And that was all done by hand and horses and stuff. There's no way hands and horses dug the Suez Canal. Uh, yeah, 1850. Yeah, this is... I don't, I don't think they had like steam-powered lo- like locomotive excavators back then. Well, wonders never cease. Because the, the aqueducts are one of the, one of the seven wonders of the world, aren't they? Why is the Suez Canal not up there? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wonderful. I was actually talking about like the the canal system in the north, which is, they used to transport wool down to the ports, Liverpool. Um, yeah, yeah, and that that was all dug by hand. And then and then oh, no, yeah, because it was it was like ten, fifteen years before the railway sort of launched. And when the railway launched, then all the the boats went out of business because the railway just took it over. Yeah, right. I feel yeah. like we might have drifted off topic. Yeah, pardon, no, it's pardon important. The, uh, pardon the, the, the shipping uh, reference. We might have drifted off. <laughs> We're in charted waters here again. <laughs> we've, we've beached. We've beached our conversation. Yeah. But an uh, important point is labor, labor used to be very cheap relative to back in the day, relative to other options. These days, machines are very cheap. Um, yeah, but, but this, despite all that, like 90% of trade is still seaborne. I was surprised at that fact. I thought there'd be more by air, but like, you know, ships are, ships are still doing the bulk of it. Hey, there's another one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we should stop. Um, yeah, so ships are still – because obviously that's the most economical way. So planes are expensive, especially if you need to, if you need to transport. You know, like you can't, I don't imagine you can load up a plane with, with tons of steel. Let's say if you're building a skyscraper somewhere and you need to transport – tons of steel to build that skyscraper doing it with planes is going to be astronomically expensive whereas you could just load up maybe one ship maybe a couple of ships and send it over and and then time you know and you're building a skyscraper maybe time's not that critical either um (laughs) i need it here by 4 p.m (laughs) but well that's it's an important point because one of the articles i read today about this said that that 90 percent didn't have time delay insurance on on their delivery so all these people that are waiting on on deliveries of all this cargo didn't have any insurance which covered them for delays in shipping so yeah i guess people do care when stuff gets there you know the whole world the whole world cares the oil price is going up not because the oil has been lost but because it's not going to reach its destination when people are expecting it to be there yeah 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 yeah, and and this comes up like uh, like shipping rates have already gone through. We're already on a tear away before this happened. So I think like yeah, so like the to ship a forty foot container from on the east west route through the Suez Canal used to cost five. So used to cost eight hundred and fifty one dollars a year ago. So if you had a forty foot container, it would cost you eight hundred and fifty dollars to get it into Europe. Now it's just shy of five thousand dollars. And that's sort of still reeling out of COVID and sort of all the supply chain disruptions we've seen since then. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's, 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 I mean, it's an interesting story for inflation. So like I think, yeah, we'll, we'll see freight rates and, and oil prices spike in the short term. Probably not massively because like a lot of, particularly with oil, like European inventories are still reasonably large. Like they're not going to run out of oil and that's what, you know, 
prices will rise, but it's not going to you know go go crazy because they can Europe can sort of just eat into their stockpiles. But it's 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 part of the inflation story, and it's something that the the central banks have said they're watching is what's happening to shipping rates because shipping rates because you know ninety percent of trades seaborne. Shipping rates affect ninety percent of traded commodities and traded goods, and so that then feeds through into into prices. And if you have a sustained increase in shipping rates, um, then you're going to have inflation. But this isn't going to be a this isn't going to be a sustain. Or is this is this more flagging the the potential through other shipping routes that there could be disruptions? This is how easily a disruption could happen. I mean, essentially, it's just a car crash mm. um, on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. um, that that this is what sending a warning sign because you know like like covid we had massive um supply chain disruption mm-hmm. but this is not expected to be long lasting right we're talking maybe a week you think so you think so i mean if they're yeah surely <laughs> i say not knowing at all how to float a <laughs> stranded ship <laughs> Ca- can't be hard, can't be hard. <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't take it more than a week you wouldn't reckon but it's temporary that's the point it's temporary yeah but i also think it, it comes at an interesting time because we have had you know massive supply chain disruptions through covid you know there's at least there's a number of choke points what they call choke points in global trade where like the Suez Canal, the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Malacca, um, these places where, where, where trade can get choked. And I think firms and nations now would be looking at all of this and there was sort of a big push up until very recently to where like the offshoring push where all of, all of the supply chain spread quite wide. They really chased the cheapest um, – labor costs and the cheapest production costs they could find and a lot of that went to china but to asia and different places and then firms and countries realized that they were very vulnerable to any disruptions to these to these networks like the whole automakers found that they couldn't access chips anymore and that sort of ground everything to a halt and for the sake of just this relatively small component couldn't produce cars anymore and and i think there's so there's this Seem one of the flavors that um, I feel like I'm reading more, a lot more about these days is companies and nations looking at their supply chains and realizing that they're quite vulnerable um, to disruption and that maybe they need to bring them closer to home or build in more resiliency or sort of alternatives that they can go to if things don't play out. And particularly like China's, you know, China's work, work leaning on the the trade levers now to sort of try and influence um, diplomatic outcomes so i think you know companies and and nations are looking at that and, and starting to feel a bit nervous so maybe the case we've sort of reached a bit of a high watermark in globalization and things might localize a bit more from here time to start time to start buying australian made yeah maybe yeah. that's you know because it feels a bit like sort of it's almost a bit like doomsday prepping can't go to the shops anymore and you're going to have to start, you know, we'll, we'll be out chopping trees down for some timber, build a table for the kids, grow our own vegetables, buy local, go to the markets. Like, I mean, obviously... You I mean, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't get seedlings during COVID for love or money in a lot of places. Like, people, people stayed home and the first thing they did was made gardens and um, right. started growing veggies. You didn't, obviously, but... No, I bought toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished off the last of our COVID wheat mix. Actually, <laughs> I wasn't hoarding. I just bought a lot of wheat mix. That was my <laughs> that was my COVID plan. Yeah. I figured we could live off wheat mix. Worst comes to worst. 
The, the other interesting thing with this is like we often think of this from like a from a Western perspective, but China is also very vulnerable to disruptions to uh, trade networks. So like the US is a is a net exporter of crude oil these days. Right. They're now exporting more than they need. They're exporting more than they. Produce. So they're making they're making it and selling it. Yeah, they're yeah. Like making it. They're they're pulling it out and selling it. Yeah, that's right. Whereas China imports three quarters of the oil it consumes, so there's quite an imbalance there. And things like steel as well. China's a big importer of steel, aren't they, from Australia? Four fifths of the iron ore it uses, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So really reliant on that. Plus, it's reliant on because it sells finished consumer goods and, and goods to the world, it needs, you know, shipping, container shipping to get those goods to places. If those, if those networks break down, it's no longer able to sell and earn earn money anymore. So China's really, you know, it's very sensitive to this as well. It's not just the Australia and US thinking like, oh, we've got to look after our supply chains. It's something that China's mm. engaging in a lot. And that's why they've got these initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative um, the what? The Belt and Road Initiative. Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. What's that? Basically, it's just, just sort of it's like the old Silk Road. Is like a that's the sort of the, there was this sort of long trading route mm. that ran into China. Back oh, in, I know it well. Yeah, thousands. Bought a lot of gear off the Silk Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not that one. No. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. So it's sort of riffing on that, but basically saying it's 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 creating these tra- trading routes that to. To, to facilitate trade into China and out of China, um, and it's also bought, you know, like it's buying, it's buying ports, it's it's buying stakes in a lot of global ports uh, because it sort of recognizes the strategic importance of that and how reliant the Chinese economy is on on these trade networks. Mm. So it's it's taking a very active role in 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 building them. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of all sorts of cargo that's got stuck. I noticed that IKEA's got tons of tons of stuff that's uh stuck on a ship somewhere which surely if there's someone who can whip something up <laughs> to get a ship unstuck we should be able to make something out of a flat pack of ikea furniture you reckon we just need a huge i mean it's all, like, the ships are backed up for, forever i mean it's you talk about costing money um they're, they're sort of forecasting millions and millions of lost lost dollars the longer these ships get stuck there and um, there is a company called Maersk, or M is it M-A-E-R-S-K? Anyway, mm. that, that's got a ton of ships that are stuck there. Um, ironically, that was also the victim of a supply chain attack, a big cyber attack back in, I think, 2017. So they got, yeah, they got hit with this big cyber attack with some malware called NotPetya. Interesting story behind that name, actually, NotPetya. It was, there was a previous, some previous malware called Petya. Oh. And it wasn't that. So they called it. I can't believe it's not Petra. <laughs> yeah. Um, $300 million in revenue they lost. They were down. All their, wow. all their IT systems were down for 10 days and oh, wow. they lost $300 million in revenue and that was in 2017. So you can imagine like if, wow. you know, if all of their ships can't, can't move and mm. they, can't, they can't ship stuff, then that was in 2017, so $300 million mm. plus inflation since then. What are mm. we looking yeah, five hundred trillion, according to our maths. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, was it a, was it a ransomware attack, or what, what was the motivation? Well, it was a, it was just some malware that kind of got out of out of control, actually. Oh, so right. they they didn't they sort of didn't mean to, and it the original Petya was ransomware, but I think not Petya was like someone someone mucked it up, and so they they cryptoed everyone they um, encrypted everyone's data, but then they didn't have the 
the decryption keys. <laughs> so they were just like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we didn't mean to release it as it was. They kind of, uh, I don't know the full story. They, um, this sort of malware got out of hand. It was designed to, to attack, I think it was the Ukraine. Um, and it just sort of, it leaked from there and, and then, yeah, supply chain. It's called a supply chain attack because it was uh, originally deployed using this accounting software called ME Doc, I think it was. Uh-huh. Um, and so anyone who used ME Doc just kind of got all caught up in it. And Maersk, the shipping company, got um, got smashed with this with this NotPetya malware, and it took out their whole IT infrastructure except for. Um, and the the reason they were able to restore their one of their key systems was because a place, I th- I'm going to say it's Nigeria, but I don't think it, it was. It was maybe another African country um, where one of their systems was offline because there was no power at the time. And so because it was powered down, because they had it was suffering a power outage at the time that this, this malware ripped through all of their infrastructure, it was the only system in Maersk's infrastructure that, was unaffected by the malware, so they were able to use it to rebuild their directory and reinstate large portions of their of their infrastructure. Total luck that this thing was offline because of a power failure. That's amazing. I'm trying, trying to sort it out. Dear sir, greetings from Nigeria. <laughs> I have, have excellent... We, we have the only copy of your directory. Good news. <laughs> Do you... <laughs> Yeah, well, it was huge. It was one of the, it was one of the most famous kind of um, malware hacks, I guess you'd call it, uh, in history. But yeah, there you go. So I know, and now Maersk is is caught up in all this. Um, what made me think of it was I read some something today about Maersk being caught up when a lot of their ships were now stuck um, waiting for the ever given to get out of the Suez Canal and let things start flowing again. So well, there you go. Interesting stuff. Uh, as we say, they are floating it right now. So by the time you hear this podcast, they may have it out of the canal. Time will tell. Uh, all right, stick around after the break. We've got uh, some listener emails to get to, including the ton of email we got uh, after a bit of a markup on our part last time. So we'll see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. You're on Comedian versus Economist and we love getting listener emails. Don't forget, you can always send us through your emails, cve at equitymates.com or head over to the contact form 
equitymates.com forward slash CVE. And this week, Thomas, we have got a few emails to get through. Um, this first email comes from just about every one of our listeners <laughs> <laughs> who tuned in last week. Um, we were talking about uh, stimulus packages and JobKeeper and we did have, I think it was a listener email actually from mm. Aaron who was writing in with a suggestion about if 300 million people uh, got a million dollars each, then that would uh, add up to 300 billion which was the same as the stimulus package that America was producing. So why not just give everyone in America a million dollars each? And then I thought, that sounds like a cracking idea. <laughs> we should definitely do that. Um, you paddled off some some stuff about <laughs> the eco- economics of it all. And people were very helpful in pointing out the fact that 300 million times 1 million does not, in fact, equal 300 billion, rather 300 trillion. So... Slight miscalculation on our part. Um, sorry if we maybe even misunderstood, Aaron, your your email. But, yeah, it was a trick um, question. <laughs> Cos maths was the right answer, maths. apparently. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, we have conducted a full and thorough uh, internal investigation on Comedian versus Economist and have found absolutely no responsibility to the comedian. Uh, in checking the maths on this show, so that was that was pleasing to see. Probably, probably worth noting that like I'm not a details guy, um, right? Yeah, which is sort of has been limiting for me actually in my career as an economist. All about the macro. Yeah, I am all about the macro. I'm about the big picture. We actually, right. when I was at the RBA, we did the um, personality test, the Myers Briggs personality oh, yeah. test. Yeah, well, it's like a metric testing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was I was way off the charts, big picture. Really, big picture, feely. Yeah, <laughs> big picture. I don't. Something tells me that that's not what the RBA is looking for in their pl- em- no. Employees. I was I was the only one of in my graduate cohort that was off the pi- big picture feely. Big picture feely. Yeah, it was much more uh, details judgy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the classic economist profile. <laughs> details judgy versus big picture feely. Uh, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, apologies for that, but thanks for letting us know. We do appreciate it. Uh, we'll we'll try to stay on top of our maths in the future. Yeah. But I stand I stand by all the big picture feely stuff that I answered in response to that question. I think that was a, that was on the money. Right. I forget what it was. All right. Next from next we got an email from Jordan. Jordan says, "Loving the show. Uh, wanted to ask what your th- thoughts about what will happen to interest rates once the four year fixed rates run their course. Can they double the interest rates overnight, or will it be a gradual increase?" Is it possible people will not be able to pay their mortgages once the rates increase from their record lows? Of course, I like to take first crack at these questions, mm, Thomas. Mm. And four years—that's that's out there. That's um, that's a long that's a long fixing in my book. Um, I, I didn't even know you could fix for four years. I thought two or three years was the only the only options. But there you go. He's fixed for four years, maybe two and two or three is the only option with my bank. But I'm I'm hearing more about these four and five years. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so. I guess in, in a four-year period, because we're talking about the cash rate effectively, which is driving the interest rates, and in a four-year period, the cash rate's going to move gradually, but at the, once you come out of your loan at the end of four years, potentially the current variable rate could be quite significantly more than what it is now because it's going gonna, it's gonna to track the, the cash rate from the, from the RBA. So, um, so the short answer to the question is, yeah, uh, it could potentially double but you'll be able to shop around for other rates once you come out of your four-year fixed rate so um and then yeah whether people can afford them or not 
uh, remains to be seen. But if they go up a lot, possibly not. Do you have anything to add? Was I right? Yeah, no, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's that's generally true. The the other piece of the puzzle, which is new that we've got since COVID, is the RBA's term funding facility. So the term funding facility gives banks access to money at the cash rate, which is zero point one percent. So almost free money mm. is gives that to the banks, provided that they then lend it out to mortgages and businesses at fixed rates. So the banks then sort of square that away. So they're getting a three-year fixed loan from the RBA at 0.1%. They then turn that around and lend it to mortgage mortgage holders at at a fixed rate that keys off that term funding facility rate. So why why can't they then, if that's the case, why can't they, presume the RBA has fixed durations on that as well, they don't offer... 10-year fixed rates or 10-year TFFs? No, not, not that I'm aware of, yeah. Right, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so, that, so that's, why, that's why fixed rates are now so much cheaper than the standard variable rates right now. It's not, normally, if, normally if fixed rates are cheaper, it means that banks are going to think that rates are staying very low. But right now, they're just keying off the RBA's rate and that's why fixed rates are lower. And that's why fixed rates have gone from like normally 5 to 10% of the market Right now, they're up around 40 to 50%. Yeah, wow. So, like, fixed rates are so much cheaper that everyone's just going to fixed rates. So, the term funding facility is due to end in June. Right. So, that that scheme where they're lending money to the banks at super cheap rates, that's due to wind up in June. Ah. So, then we'll see interest rates going up? I think what we will see is that, yeah, fixed rates will go, theoretically, fixed rates should then go back up to something closer to variable rates or something to where... The banks feel that they're in the money. They can lock right. you in and, and it feels all right. That's probably going to be closer to, to variable rates. Oh, interesting. That would be my thought. It makes me want to fix. makes me want to fix for longer. Yeah, I was actually having that thought today, but haven't you fixed already? Yeah, because you told me to fix like a year ago. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm conflicted. I don't know whether I should fix because this all sounds like it makes good sense or if I should, should just stay away because um, what you told me last time was wrong. <laughs> No, it was right. Like you, you, you've saved a lot of money on the back of that I advice, have. and yeah, I, and I've done, I've done well too. Mm. But I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not seeing many people talk about this. So I don't feel super confident with it. But I would kind of think that if you are arming and ring, you know, fixing your rates now, if you know that matches your circumstances and all your own personal financial considerations, mm. and you've talked to an independent financial planner and all of that first, um, I would think fixing your rates is probably smart like i don't think they're going to go much lower i don't think that's possible and it's that's the, what you said last time i did say that last time didn't i <laughs> <laughs> and then they just went lower <laughs> they kept going lower <laughs> but it, yeah so i don't know I mean, that's the only disclaimer you need that you had that all, mm. the, all that other disclaimer about about independent financial advice blah 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 but all you needed to say was keep in mind i got this wrong last time <laughs> <laughs> Because if that's true, then maybe Jared's under something with his four-year fixed rate. I guess four years sounds like a good option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly given where the economy's at right now, like, yeah. I mean, the RBA has said that they want to see unemployment rate, the unemployment rate keep going lower, so they want to they juice economic activity. They want to see business investment pick up, yeah, before they start even, you know, before they start considering um, raising rates. Mm. They're... they're 
it, it looks like, remember there's three things that the RBA did post-COVID. They cut interest rates, the official cash rate, which is what they normally did. Then they did two unconventional things. One was the term funding facility, which gave mm. banks ac- access to super cheap money. And then the third was money printing, so printing $5 billion a week, um, which now most analysts that I'm reading are talking about that that's going to be extended. Currently that runs till September, and it's most likely it's going to be extended further beyond that to sort of just keep pace with what's happening in the world. The term funding facility seems particularly focused on mortgage holders and business investment, but particularly mortgage holders. It's hard to see an argument for for that sticking around, given that house prices are already on a tear away, households are, are pretty flush, they've had a big wealth effect out of rising household house prices, plus they've got a large savings pool that they're sitting on. Mm. It's it's hard to sort of make the case that households need more support. So, yeah, I would, like personally, I don't know, but I don't, I don't see many people talking about this. So it's a bit hard to I don't have know all the details or all the pieces of the puzzle about this argument. But from where I stand, it doesn't seem like there's a strong argument for for keeping it going. All right. Well, I hope that answered your question, Jordan. Jared wrote, wrote in as well. Jared says, curious as money flows into the market. And this may be a bit of a follow-on question from the last one. Um, as money flows into the market with low interest rates, uh, will the opposite happen if they rise and would rising rates affect general market returns? He says he's generally a passive investor hoping to see about 10% returns on super, etc. So what happens if interest rates rise? So that's not bad. Jared, I reckon <laughs> if you're a passive investor netting 10%, then first I have a question, where, where can I get some of that action? And mm. Do you want to come on the show? Uh, if I were you, I would, just, I would just stay on the sidelines and just keep making it rain, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's 10% for doing nothing. That's, that's my game. So we, have covered, we did cover this off a bit. I'll, I'll hand it over to you because I... I'm still not sure I understand bond yields and everything else that goes with it. But um, as interest rates go up, I think there is a chance that certain markets are going to go down, certain sections of the market, maybe things like technology stocks and whatever that were maybe overvalued or or susceptible to interest rates for various reasons. Um, they might go, the returns might drop on those. But is that is that roughly yeah yeah that's yep yeah, that's that's a piece of the puzzle i mean part of it is it depends on the your asset allocation mix that in your super portfolio so rising interest rates are obviously good for fixed incomes um so you, you get higher return on, on your fixed income investments what what it does to stocks can be a bit of a mixed bag and it sort of depends on what else is going on but yeah so the idea is a lot of valuations are pretty stretched because Money has been so cheap, and um, that's allowed them to to leverage and ex- expand. And people have projected that forward, and things look cheap. And as that as as interest rates start to rise, then then those share prices might look um, overcooked, and they, they might start to unwind. But at the same time, if it's if interest rates are rising because the economy is doing so well, then that boosts the profit for the outlook for for firms which is a positive for share prices. So how that all balances out is is not super clear cut. All right, and the next one is from Hannah. Hannah says, hey, guys, love the show. I heard something about Turkey and their interest rates going to 19%. Can you explain what's going on there and could it happen here? Uh, no idea, Hannah, I'm sorry. Uh, I have no idea why Turkey's interest rates would be going to 19%. Maybe they... Maybe they've got some shipping containers full of cash that they're waiting on and they're stuck in a 
in a canal somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Thomas, what's going on in Turkey? Oh, this, this segment's great, isn't it? It's so glad. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I don't know why. Why would like, Turkey's rates be at nineteen percent? The rest of the world's sitting at like point one. Mm. Why is ter- why on earth would Turkey be at nineteen percent? Well, it's not only their nineteen percent that a couple of weeks ago the Turkey's central bank governor raised rates two percent in a single hit. So they were seventeen percent. He raised them another two percent to nineteen percent. At <laughs> at which point President Erdogan fired him and installed someone else as central bank governor. What, what? Yeah. Right. So, well, how did they get to... Okay. <laughs> I feel like you haven't answered the question. I don't think uh, it's really that significant that they went up from 17 to 19. I think maybe what's more significant, <laughs> how the hell did they get to 17 in the first place? <laughs> Why? Uh, this sort of ties into our conversation around N- MMT. The, the idea here is that Turkey has a lot of its debts, as I understand it, denominated in foreign currencies. So, when American banks and firms lend to Turkey... They're not happy to have the have their debt sit in lira, because the lira is traditionally yeah it's just too volatile and, and puts them at puts them at risk because they they say no we want U.S. dollars back we're going to give you a hundred U.S. dollars we want a hundred U.S. dollars back we don't want the lira equivalent because we don't know what the lira equivalent is going to be worth in mm-hmm. two years five years whatever, um, and so their debts are, de- are denominated in foreign currency. Now, if the currency starts to devalue that means that the, their debts become relatively more expensive. Does that make sense? So because yes. lira is devaluing, then the, the US dollar debts start getting more and more expensive and the, the burden of paying the interest and repaying the debts becomes bigger and bigger until it potentially cripple, cripples the economy. Yep. So what you've got to do to prevent that is you, you can't allow your, the lira to devalue. You've got to hold it up. The, the way that you hold it up is that you set interest rates at a high rate, which then attracts money into the country. The money coming into the country needs lira to be able to invest, to cap- capitalize on these 19% interest rates, and that support that pushes the lira higher or holds it up at a particular level. Right. So they're, kind of, they're forced to do this because they're li- like many emerging market economies, their debts aren't denominated in the local currency. They have foreign denominated debts. Because that because that's going on, they've got to then they've got to they sacrifice their interest rate independence almost because they've got to use the interest rate lever not to support the economy like we're free to do in Australia. They've got to use interest rates to support the currency to stop the debts getting out of control, and I think that's what's happening in Turkey. Yeah, crazy times. Uh, I reckon we need to leave it there for this week. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show this week. Don't forget, you can, of course, send us email. I think I've given out the emails a bunch of times already, so I'm not going to say it again. Um, RCV at equitymates.com. There you go. Said it. Whatever. Right. Just play by my own rules. Um, don't forget, you can check out all the other great podcasts. There's so many now across the Equity Mates Media um, group, so um, make sure you go and check out all the other podcasts that we have now. Uh, Get Started Investing, Equity Mates Investing Podcast, uh, we've got Carmel and Zoe with uh, Meet, Pay, Love and some a really great new podcast uh, which is called You're in Good Company. Uh, Maddie and Sophie are doing some amazing stuff there. So plenty to, plenty to listen to. We do, of course, thank you enormously for tuning in to Comedian vs. Economist and hope that you'll join us again next time. We'll see you then. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. 
The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs. Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.